0: one of the pastors here. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. We, we started a series on Colossians a couple of weeks ago, and as is our, our usual practice, we um, take a book of the Bible, and we walk through it from the, uh, from the first verse to the end, and we consider what God's Word has to say in context. And so, we're looking at Colossians, and we're at one of Probably the uh, the high points in Scripture, and, and I mean that by um, there, there are some places in Scripture that, uh, that that takes us so so high up the mountain, if you will, that the air is thin and um, the uh, the view is breathtaking. And that's where we are this morning is one of those breathtaking views. Um, it's Colossians chapter one, beginning in verse fifteen, and. To set it up, I want to uh, give you a little background of it, but to do that, I, I was reminded this week of um, of Larry King, who used to host the, the CNN uh, program for 25 years, and then he he did something on the internet for a little while after that, but he was a, a the CNN host of Larry King Live. And he, uh, what stood out is between 1985 and, and 2010, 2015, he interviewed some of the most important people in the world. I mean, if they were important in the world at the time, they would come on the Larry King show, and he would interview them and, and uh, uh, question them. And uh, you know, there was nothing off limits. You know, he would ask. Difficult questions and 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 make people really uh, give thoughtful answers to things that they um, you know in some ways maybe would rather not have asked. But there was this one episode and it wasn't the only one that sometimes Larry King would invite someone on to interview him. And in this occasion, it was Bryant Gumbel, and he was interviewing Larry King. Now, King was famous for uh, his fascination with Christianity with religion. He'd have Billy Graham on um, often and other religious leaders and would always ask them these pointed questions. Well, Brian Gumble gets to the end of the interview and, and asks him the question and says, hey, if you could ask um, God, you know, one question, if you could interview him, Larry, what would be the question that you'd ask him? And it's a, it's a sort of a famous clip, and Larry King says very earnestly, It says, I would ask him if he had a son. That's what he wanted to know. He always wanted to know. He was fascinated with who Jesus was. I don't know that he ever came to an answer in his life. He died just just last year, but he spent a lifetime curious about who Jesus was. Old scholars, researchers um, estimate that of all the people, or all the people that have ever lived since the beginning of the world, civilization, about 60 billion people have walked the planet. And of those 60 billion people that have walked the planet, uh, only a handful have made any uh, real or lasting impression. Only a handful have, uh, you know, done what we would say changed the world. And of that handful, there is one who stands head and shoulders above all the others, and that is Jesus. In in fact, ever lived throughout the history of the world, the words of Jesus, the record of Jesus, has been studied more than all. After 2,000 years, Here's what we know. There's not, not a minute, not, hardly. A, there's never a minute on this planet that there are not thousands, perhaps millions, that are studying what it is that he has to say. So, so think about this. He's a, a person from our historical record that um, uh, is is from a uh, uh, lived in a in a tiny uh, town. I mean, a, a, a minuscule town in, in the in in a tiny land. And he did that 2,000 years ago. And yet, the reality is it's his birth that divides the, the millennia, the, the, the centuries. You, you have A.D. and B.C., before Christ, and, and Anno Domini, which is, a, the, you know, the, the year of the Lord. He divides history. So, he never wrote a book that we know of. And yet there's library after library filled with volumes, multiple millions of volumes written about who he is. He never painted a picture so far as we know. And yet the world's greatest art and the world's greatest dramas and the world's greatest music and the world's greatest literature has Jesus Christ as its source and its center been observed that he never raised an army, yet millions have died for him. He he never traveled very far from where he was born, and yet the story of who he is has gone around and around and around the world. Only had a handful of followers while he was alive, and yet today 30% of the world's population names his name, Jesus. Three short years of public ministry, and yet 2,000 years later, even this morning, all over the world, songs are being sung to Him. One writer said it this way, to explain Jesus Christ is impossible. To ignore Jesus Christ is disastrous. To reject Him is fatal. Human speech is too limited to describe him. the human mind too small to comprehend him, and the human heart can never really, really, completely, totally absorb who Jesus is. So who is Jesus? And, and what do the scriptures have to say? Well, that's what I want to do this morning. I want to look at what the scriptures have to say. in Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 20. Is, is probably a, a poem or a, a, a hymn that the church w- would have sung. And whether it originated with Paul or not, Paul is, is using this here. He's, he's employing this. And, and so they become the words of Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit recorded in this letter to the Colossians. And they describe who Jesus is, what it is that the Christians of the first century believed about Jesus. And there are two parts of it. The first part is about uh, Jesus' supremacy over creation, and the second part is Jesus' supremacy over the new creation. And and so, we want to read those, and then we'll come back and look at it. But here's what it says, Colossians chapter 1, beginning in Verse 15. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent or supreme. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. If you would, would you bow with me? Father, help us this morning to hear these words, to catch the the glimpse this morning of the image of the invisible God. Father, help us to behold Your Son, Jesus, it is in His name that we pray, Amen. Well, who who is He in relation to God? Well, uh, Paul begins r- right there in verse fifteen. He is the image of the invisible God, and it's a it's a carryover from what we looked at last week. He he's called the beloved Son of the Father. He is through he's one through whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins. And then he goes on to describe Jesus. Who is he? Well, in relation to the Father, he's the the, uh, image of the invisible God. And the word there literally is the Greek word icon. It means likeness. What one theologian, Christ uh, Christ always has been, is, and always will be the image of God. His incarnation, meaning the God taking on flesh, his incarnation did not make him the image of God, but it did bring him as being that image within our grasp. So, so Paul's saying that Jesus, he's the image, he's the icon of God, and, and, and what he's saying is, is, is that Jesus is equally God. Jesus is a portrait of God, and, and the word icon, it, it captures the idea also all of the person's character. If you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Jesus is the picture of God, and He reveals this character because He is God. Jerry Vines, this old preacher, uh, gives this image, and he's imagining... uh, you know, the day that Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, goes into the temple and begins having a conversation with the, uh, the, you know, the religious leaders of his day there in Jerusalem. And, he, you know, they the, the asking him some questions. And, and so he imagines the conversation goes like this. Son, how old are you? Well, he says, on my mother's side, I'm 12 years old. But on my father's side, I'm older than my mother and as old as my father. He's Both God and man. Then now, on, my, on his mother's side, he got thirsty. On his father's side, he said, I am the water of life. On his mother's side, he got hungry. On his father's side, he took a little lad's lunch and fed 5,000. On his mother's side, he was homeless, didn't have a place to lay his head. On his father's side... He owned the cattle on a thousand hills. On his mother's side, he wept at the grave of Lazarus. On his father's side, he said, Lazarus, come forth and raised him from the dead. He was God in human flesh. That's what it means, that he's the image, that he's the icon. And so so when we say this, then we're in this uh, deep end of the water in a doctrine called uh, the Incarnation, which means when you see Jesus you see God that that's what it it means that Jesus is God come into human history in the flesh. And, and, and so to be careful what it's not saying he, he's not saying that a human being became God. It's not teaching that in fact that's the that's the first lie. You know, Satan told in the garden, and some religions like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, they perpetuate it. It, it. It's not that someone became God or that someone can become God. It's that God became someone. God became a human being. J- John Calvin, the old theologian, which I know when I say Calvin, I already know I'm going to get an email and not talking about that part of Calvin's theology. But he said it this way. He uses this great language. He, he says that w- what God does in the incarnation is, is He accommodates to us. And that's a good word, this accommodating. Uh, it, it's the same word that you would use to describe what a what a good mom does with her kids. She accommodates with her kids. So, she'll walk at the pace that they walk in the store, you know, holding their hand and walking much slower, doing things that forces you to accommodate yourself to them. And likewise, God is creator, and we're created, and God needs to accommodate to us. He needs to, to work in such a way that, that accounts for all our limitations and all the parameters in which we live in. And so, so God does that by coming to us as the person Jesus, like a like a parent that gets down on the floor with their child and speaks to their kids and relates in a way and an understanding so so, so that we can comprehend. And God does that for us in Jesus. This is what the incarnation means. And the confusion comes. Let me just talk about the confusion for a second. Is when you say that Jesus is only God or only man. And the church wrestled with this, how to articulate it, how how to say what it is that they believed. And so the first bit of that, in 325, there's a council of Nicaea, and, and the church articulates the, the deity of Christ, the deity of Jesus. He is fully God. The, the, the language is of the same substance, of the same essence as the Father. Fully well, about 125 years later, they have another council, and the council here is in Chalcedon, and it's, it's not defining this time the, the deity of Jesus. That's already been articulated, but there was need to come back and articulate what it means that he's fully human as well, fully God and fully man. And how neither of those diminish the other. And so the, the council at Chalcedon came up with the word hypostatic union. One person with two natures humanity and divinity, fully man, fully God, joined together in the person of Jesus. All of his deity fully retained, fully possessed all that He is as the eternal Son of the Father, the second person of the Godhead, yet not fully expressed all, who, all He was in His deity when He took on His human nature. So, so fully possessed, not fully expressed. And so the reality is, here's what, what Paul saying, if you want to know what God looks like, You look at Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God. And when you see Jesus, you see God. This is good. What a gracious gift. In Exodus 33, go all the way back to the Old Testament, God declares no man can see him and live. And yet John comes along in his gospel as he's introducing Jesus to us and says no one's ever seen God, but but Jesus has made the invisible God known. And and in Hebrews 1.3, Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He shows us who God is. In fact, Jesus said himself in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That like that old story where the little boy is drawing a picture and His mom comes up to him and says, hey, so what are you you coloring there? And he says, well, I'm I'm drawing a picture of God. And so she's not wanting to squash the the budding artist in him. He says, well, you know, Johnny, nobody really knows what God looks like. And to which he says, well, they will after I'm done. It's the incarnation. Let's say it this way. Through Christ, the Word, God became audible. Through Christ, the light, God became visible. Through Christ, the life, God became tangible. Through Christ, the Son, God became noble. See, we can't ascend to where God is. And so, God descended to our humanity. That's why the language is. This is why His name, God has come near. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And so he goes on in, in, in the second half, and, and we're picking up speed here, don't worry. Jesus, how, who is he in relation to creation? Who is he in relation to God? Well, he's the image of God. Who, who is he in relation to creation? Well, he's the, f- the firstborn, and, and then this, this trips us up right here because we're, we, we live in the 21st century and we speak English, all right? And when we say firstborn, we think of people like me, who I'm the oldest of five children, all right? So, I would be the firstborn in my family. But that is not what Paul means. What what, what Paul means is is not, he's not talking historically or chronologically, he he speaks relationally. He's talking about rank. He's not talking about chronologically firstborn, he is talking about position, rank, uh, uh, you know, the the supremacy that he is above all things. Israel, back in Exodus, is called God's firstborn. David is called God's firstborn, although we know David was the youngest. It, it means preeminent or first place or supreme, the, the, the one that outranks everything else. And, and then here's the heresy alert, okay? So when someone comes and they knock on your door and they're wearing uh, the, the black slacks and the, the short sleeve white shirt, and, and the, the thing that they want to tell you is, have you ever read? And then they'll go to one or two places. They'll either go to John chapter 1, verse 1, or they will go to Colossians 1.15 and say, well, Jesus is just like you, just a man. Now, he's a great man and, and one who became God, but he's not God eternal. And you say, no, no, no. See, you don't understand how language works because that's not what that word means. It means supremacy. In fact it's an old heresy it goes all the way back to the 3rd century it actually goes back to the 1st century but Arius he taught Jesus did not coexist eternally with the father this was one of his verses it said he was he was you know to be honored and highly exalted but he's the first of creation and so the church gets together and they declare him a heretic. Because he's not the first of creation. He is through whom all creation comes. He is firstborn in the sense that he is supreme of everything. And then it goes on. Verse 16 and 17, look at this again. For, for by him all things are created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. There's no doubt in Paul's mind that Jesus is the author of all Creation. He himself is not a created being. And so, we behold the, the, the wonder and the, and the glory of the world that Jesus created, and, and, and we worship and honor him all the more. I mean, just think about this for a second. So, let your mind take this in. So, so of all things visible... C- comets. You 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 read this, and uh, you know they have vapor trails up to ten thousand miles long. And if you took all that vapor and, and brought it all together, it would fit inside of a of a of a of a Coke bottle. now you get this: we're, we are on a planet called Earth right now, and we are revolving around the Sun. And, and, the, and the truth is, we're we revolving right now, we're moving. We are in motion right now at 900 miles an hour. Nineteen miles a second is how fast we're moving. And the sun it's at the center. That's what we're revolving around. And the sun and you and me and all the stars that we can see and are moving at a million miles a day in an outer spiral arm at 40,000 miles an hour in a galaxy called the Milky Way. And yet you don't feel like you're moving. You feel like you would as if you were standing still. And our galaxy contains 100 billion stars. It's 100,000 light years Side to side. And we're 30,000 light years from the center of it. And we go round every 200 million years. Our galaxy is one of millions of billions. It's an amazing and expanding universe. For by him all things were created. There's another crazy thing to consider. Human Chromosomes. I don't know this, I had to take it at the, at the word here. Billions of bits of information. If you were to take one chromosome and all the information on it, translate that into an ordinary book in ordinary language, it'd be 4,000 volumes. Greek scholar A.T. Robertson says, All things were created, has the idea of stand created or remain created. The permanence of the universe rests than on Christ, far more than on gravity. Paul says, this is a Christ-centric universe. Everything seen, but Paul doesn't stop there. He gets into everything unseen. There's the visible and the earth, and then the invisible and the heaven, which which means, you know, on the one hand, in the invisible, this is angels and demons and spirits, and we get a glimpse of that in Scripture, and then our imaginations are set ablaze, and our caution is that we would make too much of that, and yet at the same time that we'd make too little of it. And then there's another part of the invisible creation. It means that God's designed the world to work in a certain way, and there's these Invisible realities that that he weaves into the world. For instance, you you, you can't breathe underwater. And there's a certain time and a way to to plant and to harvest. And there's seasons and there's cycles. And God designed the world to function in a certain way. And invisible realities that we might call. We might call them laws of nature or, or laws of the universe. And the Bible says he created those also. For by him all things were created. And then it says that they're created through him and for him. And the idea here is that everything's moving towards him. So I did that you you and I were on this we're on this immovable. Track that we can't get off of and we're headed towards Jesus Christ and he's headed towards us and there's this collision coming. And so, just for a second, consider the ramifications of this with me. Paul saying or singing, maybe. If this is true, then the, the, the commands of God in the Bible, we should celebrate those like David celebrates them in the Psalms. Just take Psalm 119, for instance. Here's a couple of them. Just, just listen to how David says this. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I'll keep them to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe observe it with my whole heart and and, and lead me in the path of your commandments for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promises that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread for your rules are good And then he says, Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness give me life. And he goes on later, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Your words a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And this, I need this more in my life. I need this posture. I need this conviction. And the reason that David talks like this is because David has tapped into this reality. Jesus is the author and the the perfecter and the creator of all things, and his commandments are about lining us up with how he designed everything to work. The commands of God are about him connecting us to life, not taking life from us. So, if God says, well, this is how sex works. He's not trying to take it away from you. He's trying to lead you into something. He says, this is how marriage works. Then this is how you should walk in marriage. He's trying to lead you into how marriage was designed to be. I'm not saying, I'm not saying the commands of God are easy. I wouldn't say that. i try to be obedient to him. And then I realize I'm, so I'm, I have a sinful, wicked old man in me that wars against these things. I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying you can delight in the commands of God. You can delight in the law of God because Jesus. Jesus means through that to lead you into life. So whether about your children or your money or your time, all those things, Jesus is lining you up for how it is he designed it and created it. He created all things. He leads us in the way of life. Well quickly. Look look at the last bit of it, beginning in verse 18. That's the, his his supremacy over all creation. Now, now his supremacy over over the church and and, and new creation. So, he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. This is resurrection, that in everything he might be preeminent. And for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And then through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The first part of the hymn shows us the the, uh, the hand of God. This is what God does here through His Son Jesus you know, almost in this first part, you know, of creation does that without, without effort. But, but the second part, if you have the hand of God in creation, here you have the heart of God, not just who He is, but what He loves and, and what He came to redeem. And, and, and you realize in the first, the creation of the world cost Him nothing. He speaks and it is But the redemption of the world, going all the way back to verse 14, redemption, forgiveness of sins, all of this all of this cost him his son, the shedding of blood. It's not the might of the first part, it's compassion, all the creative power that's in. The creation of all things is brought to bear here. And what God does to reconcile us to Himself. Think of it this way God the Creator, God the Creator, died for the creatures sin. You you have to to get that into its context. You have to understand. So, so this is what he's talking about. He sets you up. This is how great he is. This is how awesome he is, how mighty Jesus is. And then he speaks of the blood of his cross. He died on a cross. He's made everything. seed that becomes a root that becomes a tree and then he comes and he dies on a tree. Makes the oceans and all the waters of the world comes to a place where he says I thirst. His, his death and his divinity his deity they they're put together and so it's not that he died just died lots of people have died it is the fact that he is the creator of all things that makes his death meaningful and his death makes him noble When God created the universe, he did it with the word, effortless. When he saved us, that word, John says, became flesh. The word that was in the beginning with God was God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when God saved us, he did it with his word. And it took every drop of his blood. And he didn't have to do that. And so the answer to Larry King's question, yes, he does have a son, and he died for you. And we should note. The Bible tells us, in all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things. Salvation is God's joyous work. How inviting. He's the Son of God revealed on the pages of His holy word and He's the one who took my sin and your sin. And He took it to the cross and He made peace with the blood of His cross. Takes the sinful hand of man and the holy hand of God and brings us together. He makes peace, it says. Maybe your story in life intersects you with what we've talked about this morning. Maybe you're sitting here this morning and, and, and you know, what you know about yourself is you've hidden some, something away in your life for a long time, so some secret shame or guilt or some burden you're carrying. And the great news is there is such hope in this passage. There's nothing secret in your life or shameful in your life or hidden or, or burdensome in your life that is, that is outside of the grace of God. And it is not that thing that defines you this morning. If you are a believer, you are defined by the redemption and the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of Jesus. You're defined by the gospel of a cross that took the blood of our Savior and covers every sin. You're a child of God, the living God. All things. I've looked this week, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon on those two words, all things, 12,000-word sermon. To give you some context, this is a 3,000-word sermon. 12,000 words on all things. And he was just getting warmed up. And I want you to know this morning that you, 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 a part of you, you are in that phrase. You're, You're there between the all and the things, you're there, you're all things, your past, your present, your future. God has made the way to reconcile you to Himself to make peace for you by the blood of His Son. And there is no sin that is a match for God's grace and there is no safer place for you than to come before God this morning. Who is Jesus? It's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And he has made peace for you.